Hey, Diddly China is produced together with our friends at Radii, this awesome independent media platform. If you're interested in culture and innovation in China, you should definitely check out RadiiChina.com. They'll give you an inside look into everything from China's underground music scene to bike sharing. That's RadiiChina.com. I mean, China recognizes they need to evolve from being a low-value-added economy, moving into advanced manufacturing, and the only way to do this is to use technologies like robotics and, and AI to enable their economy and their companies. It's a super wide term. Can we just try to narrow it down first? I think that's a really good question because the narrative that forms around AI is often misleading, or just one part of AI. So that doesn't sound all that sexy. But it's essentially a system that interprets and learns from data, and then applies those learnings to complete tasks. Considering Eva is away on holiday, I have a special guest with me this week. Nick is one of the great examples of all the foreign super smart talent that now have moved to China in order to pursue opportunities here. Previously, he was working with AI at the e-commerce company JD. Welcome to Digitally China, a podcast about the fascinating Chinese, Chinese tech, tech industry, industry created together with Radii. I'm Eva. I'm Jacob, and I'm Tom. So, according to various studies, China's gaming industry is now, in fact, the largest in the world. You may know their messaging app called WeChat. Chinese outbound M&A. Chinese corporates are buying international uh, companies at record pace. The hottest phone you've probably never heard of. China's Xiaomi, yes, it's state, it's claim to Apple's credit. Major deal over in China. You have Chinese tech giant Tencent leading an $8.6 billion acquisition to buy a major stake in Supercell. $14.3 billion in sales clocked by a Chinese e-commerce site in one wild day. Where do I start? I actually grew up in America. My hometown is New York, and so actually coming to China to me wasn't like a lot of other Chinese Americans coming back and reconnecting with their roots. For me, it was a vastly new place because I'm actually fourth generation Chinese, and I thought you know I was going to spend a summer here teaching English, you know, improving my Chinese a little bit. But subsequently,、uh, I ended up changing the entire direction of my life because I. Was so inspired by what I saw out here. I most recently was working at JD.com, leading their AI innovation team. And before that, I was actually out in Northeast China, running my own company that brought people from all around the world to North Korea. And the education programs that we ran in North Korea, we used to raise money to support scholarships to bring North Korean students out of the country. So that was something that I did for four to five years, very different from the AI scene.、Um, spent time working at、uh, you know a top design consultancy out here. Went back for grad school、um, at Stanford.、Uh, I did an MBA there, and、uh, you know I never really thought that I would stay so long, but now I've never really given any second thought to leaving. So it's something that has slowly come to form a central part of my identity. I can go more into that as well, but it's just a very, very exciting everything I see here,、um, which really makes me want to stay. And now you're based in Shenzhen, working with the fintech company Caracool. Correct. So my co-founders and I, we started Caracool at the middle of 2018, and the idea that we saw was that、uh, connecting companies from Europe 
especially in a lot of the startup hubs in Europe, which have incredible teams, incredible products, but lack the the scale of funding that exists in the US and Chinese ecosystems. So we saw this value in connecting these startups to investors in Asia in the first instance, and then ultimately all around the world. Um, and we do this in a, in a very straightforward way. In the first instance, we have technology that is able to aggregate and extract information from private companies and transform that information into what we call a storybook, which is essentially a immersive interface for you know, a company's story. It has its key statistics, its key product, its key people. And then these are the, the interfaces that we forward to our entire network of investors, especially strategic investors in Asia. And then we help facilitate connections between the two. Today, we're actually here to talk about AI. I did some research on AI and my only angle was what are the actual B2C use cases where AI is applied. And the only thing I found was within stuff like text, voice, image recognition or video recognition, and then recommendation engines, the way e-commerce companies do it. Well, I mean... The more relevant question isn't so much what area AI is applied, but exactly how it's applied within that area. You know, even if you look at voice, you can see many different use cases for voice. So, you know, a classic example is Amazon Alexa. When you take that type of technology and then apply it to the existing ecosystem that Amazon has built around shopping, and especially shopping for your everyday things, coupled with you know, basically on-demand delivery, which is something that JD.com can also guarantee. Um, it's a very powerful, you know, these smart speakers, it's a very powerful technology. So when we're looking at the type of business cases that really make sense for AI, it doesn't actually make sense to begin with the technology. It, it's kind of like going back to basics, figuring out what, what the users or the customers need, and then seeing if AI helps to deliver value better. And when I say better, I mean faster or lower cost or with a more delightful experience. Yeah. So one of the like main things with AI is what you mentioned a little bit before, a machine that by looking at data multiple times can learn itself and become better. And it may be hopefully in future smarter than human beings. Well, I mean, to me, this idea of smarter also becomes uh, blurry if we don't talk about it in a, in a more matter of fact way. What it really means is that pattern recognition is something that you do if you have a lot of practice. And so, you know, I believe it was somehow said that if you want to become an expert, you have to practice at something for 10,000 hours. And so, you know, a human could also accomplish a lot of tasks that a machine could if you practice over and over and over again. And so if you take the example of, you know, chess, great chess master will play, you know, many, many games every single day and has studied all the great games. Um, in the AI, you can feed the you know, public record of chess games you know, by the thousands, by the millions in a very, very short period of time. You, the AI can play against itself. It can run simulations over and over and over again and continue to learn from those simulations and, and make itself even better. And basically, add more fuel to its pattern recognition engine. And because of that, it ultimately outperforms humans. So when there is a task that is repeatable and when there are rules that are very concrete, very well-defined, AI excels. 
let's take another example. Uh, let's take the recommendation engine we talked about for and the use case of, let's say, Amazon being able to tell you what you should buy or guess what you want to buy right now. How does that actually work? You know, what we're looking at is how do you process data? How do you process data to improve uh, the way you deliver services? So the data that a company like Amazon collects every day you know, it begins to repeat itself. It's certain types of people will buy certain things over and over again. Now, humans can identify these things, but there's certain things that humans will miss. And so once you, know, you have an AI system that can analyze these patterns at granular detail, you can pick up certain things that you know, the human eye might not have caught. So for example, you can infer that for whatever reason, maybe a certain cosmetic product, which normally would be sold to women, you would imagine, or that's the conventional wisdom that humans often fall victim to, um, is actually very well received by men. And because of that, you know, that would pop up automatically in a recommendation engine, something that the smartest people at Amazon might not have thought of. Because it's forward thinking. It can look at this data and, and make recommendations based on the trends in the data that humans are much less equipped to do. So one thing I just can't understand 100% here when it comes to, for example, the recommendation engines is, does that only actually make the big players larger in the sense that you need that data set in order to deliver an awesome product experience. So does that mean that the startup, because of AI, never can go in and compete with, let's say, Alibaba or JD or Amazon, because they will always give a more personalized experience thanks to their data sets? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, startups can use A-B testing to improve their experience. But generally, when you're talking about something like recommendation engines and you're not aggregating a lot of products or a lot of content onto your site, there's just not as many choices. So I would say it's the difference between if you had, you know, you went into a restaurant and you had a menu that had a thousand different items. If you presented that to a customer, um, they would want you to help sort those items and make some suggestions, right? But if you go into a restaurant and there's only 10 items on the menu or even more extreme, it's, it's omakase, the chef decides what you get to eat, then you know, a recommendation engine is less important. So let's take the example of a boutique brand, which a lot of these startups have created. They have a very loyal following around a specific brand. The idea of recommending a specific item to a person is less important than building an emotional connection between customer and brand. And it's building those emotional connections that still, you know, there's no pattern for that. It, you know, human creativity is really, really important. I mean, you could apply AI to see, well, let's look at all of these other small boutique brands and let's see if there's a pattern that can be identified between the brands that succeed and the brands that don't ultimately succeed. And maybe you can draw some inferences. But by and large, creative intuition wins in this case because uh, a lot of these brands are selling products or creating experiences that never existed before. So I think for the smaller companies, you know, these recommendation engines that aggregate massive amounts of data based on their inventory or their their um, their GMV, it just is not as relevant for a smaller company. Another example that's very popular globally is uh, in China called Douyin and abroad TikTok former Musical.ly. They've been talking a lot about their algorithms in order to figure out who to show certain videos to because your attention span is so short as a user, so you'll give up after like three, four videos. And therefore, it's so important for them to kind of match you to the right content. So that's very powerful as well. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because... When we talk about analyzing a product, I mean, we talked about that with e-commerce, it's actually quite straightforward because a product is cataloged. 
it, it's a light and the light is produced by a company and then it has certain specs, so on and so forth. When you're talking about video content, context is much harder to infer, far harder than text. And so if you have the ability to analyze a video and make some kind of guess as to what that video is showing, and then to be able to classify that video as, I don't know, a humorous video, a shocking video, a cute video, and apply these tags to that video, then you can figure out what type of user gravitates towards this type of video and then show that user this video. Because ultimately, these social media companies are successful, or I could say they live and die by their ability to retain users. You are looking at the phone for every single waking moment of your life that you're not spending on eating and bodily functions. And to me, that's a scary proposition um, because I don't think there is enough forethought going into the type of content that is shown and the long-term ramifications of having especially young people consume this content at the volume that they are currently consuming it. There's a lack of, um, there's a lack of morality. This is my own pet peeve, but I think there's a lack of morality in terms of what these companies are showing kids. Yeah, because at some point, uh, the human element or the kind of mission of a culture comes in, right? You know, just because there's a pattern that every young kid wants to play video games doesn't mean that maybe they should. Well, I mean, this is a very important point because it, it, this is, you know, you can have AI begin to analyze patterns, but for what goal? That's something that humans can set. And so for a lot of these companies, if the goal is to retain users, then as, as your technology is able to analyze more and more patterns of what retains users, you will optimize that. And so you will create content that, you know, the end state is the perfect machine for retaining your users. But that might not be even close to the ideal type of content that is suitable for creating a harmonious society or for creating an intelligent society or a society that nurtures values, you know. Yeah, and that actually leads us a little bit into a topic that I know a lot of people are curious about. So recently I just saw a top salary list of tech companies in China. And basically the five highest paying jobs were AI related. And you've actually done that type of job. Like what does it actually mean to work with AI in a company? It sounds like you're just having a machine do all the work for you, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, there's different levels of AI, of course, but there's definitely a war for talent. You know, you need the scientists who are, are writing the algorithms, creating more cutting-edge AI. I mean, you could look at cutting-edge things with um, voice recognition or facial recognition, which is closer to market adoption, or it's, it's already there, to be honest. And then on top of that, it's, you need the tech to, to implement the AI within a product. You need a product team to build this technology within something that adapts to users' needs. And then you know, from there, it's, you, know, you go into the business ops of it. But in terms of the AI division, I would say that it really breaks down into the scientists, the engineers, the product people. And I would also argue design because ultimately, especially with B2C products, the things that you are creating will only be able to generate insights if they're able to collect data and they'll only be able to collect data if they're able to maintain usage. And ultimately, designers play a large role into making products delightful to use and keeping people engaged. 
So, I mean, what does the day-to-day look like? <laughs> it's actually quite similar to, I mean, if you're looking on the business side, it's quite similar to, you know, a typical engineering company, except the algorithms that you're writing are, are slightly different than, you know, if you're coding up a website or, you know, developing an, an app. But it's, it's generally the same kind of thing. It feels like two contradicting things because at one hand, you're saying that, you know, we have machines that's going to learn itself and become much better at voice recognition or check recognition, whatever. But on the other hand, we have a big kind of engineering team behind writing algorithms that steers the AI. So who controls what? That's a good question. The way that I would explain it to people, because I didn't work on these algorithms at the very technical level, is that you set certain parameters for what you want to optimize. And this is what I mentioned with the social media companies trying to optimize user retention. You set certain parameters for the types of things that you want to analyze. And the AI technology that you've created goes and runs either multiple scenarios or analyzes patterns to try to figure out the best way to achieve the goals that the you know, the, the person that wrote the algorithm lays out for itself. And so if it's something around a game, that's actually the simplest example. The rules of a game are very simple. So the conditions for winning are very simple. The parameters are clear. And so as long as you stay within the boundaries of the rules, the technology can analyze all of the different scenarios for every single decision point and figure out what the optimal way to achieve victory is. It becomes a little bit more difficult when you're talking about things like, you know, how to generate sales in an offline retail location somebody walks in the door and let's say you you have some kind of omniscient technology that communicates to the salesperson how best to talk to this customer and then the parameters are clear you want to make a sale but the rules for what you can do are much less clear and so in those cases um, i can't say that an engineer would be able to predict how things turn out and you really need to see well okay how does this algorithm affect the actual, you know, actual real world behavior of humans. And this actually brings us into this whole discussion about AI right now. I think the Elon Musk quote, he basically stated that it is one of the most dangerous things that's going to happen to humankind. It needs to be controlled, legislated. Otherwise, you know, we're going to leave away the power to machines and they will dominate the world, etc., etc. On the other hand, you know, uh, there are a lot of people saying that actual AI technology is just a glorified way to use human labor. So which way is it? <laughs> I don't know if I'm as prescient as Elon Musk. So I do respect his opinion a lot because the pace of technology is accelerating. So, you know, the, the advances we've made this year will be eclipsed next year, and so on and so forth. So at this rate, I don't know the pace of what, what AI will become. But I would say that one of the issues we face around controlling AI is really setting guidelines and parameters for what we want this technology to do. I, get, I don't want to keep harping on it, but I think social media is a really good example of when you take a recommendation engine that knows so much about you, um, such that it can manufacture addiction. We have to think about, is AI already controlling us? Because this is something that was designed by humans. We're not even talking about omniscient AI at this point, but we are already in some sense slave to a lot of the, the content that is delivered to us through AI recommendation engines. And I know it myself as, you know, these products are designed around exactly these types of insights. 
every person's feed is different. Every person's feed is designed to optimize the amount of time they spend on the platform. And so there's certain examples where we already are quite attached to AI. I mean, you look at the way we use our phone to do a whole number of things. I, I mentioned a very simple use case earlier interview around how optical character recognition is used to do online deposit of checks or you know, an online scan of your credit card, or you, know, you can take a picture of, of a document and convert it to a PDF. These things are very, very simple, or you can con- convert it to like a Word document. These are things are very simple technology, and yet we, we already are reliant on it. And so the question is, is there forward-thinking insight that sets guidelines around the type of technology we can create with AI, around certain guidelines that are tied to our values as a society? That's number one. And I think number two is, do we have the human capacity to think independently about when to put the brakes on? Now, I think people who are less optimistic, like Elon Musk would say that we've already lost the will to put the brakes on these things because we're not even aware of the degree to which we rely on AI-powered technology and and products and experiences. Okay, but let's drill down on that. What are the actual risks? Let's say we let AI develop freely and all that. What is that worst case? So, I mean, this is where, for me, um, it kind of borders on the science fiction, but I think the worst case for me, the, the scenario that I fear is that humans lose the ability to think independently. Because why should I think independently when AI can optimize my decision making? I mean, think about when's the last time you went driving to a place you don't recognize without using your GPS? I mean, you might know how to get there, but you know, do you know what the most optimized route is in terms of avoiding traffic? You know, um, avoiding accidents and red lights. And these things are already commonplace. So we can aggregate all of this data from cars and you know news sources all around the world, and we just aggregate all that information. It can optimize our travel route. We've already become completely reliant on that. And so when you look at the way we look at um, you know, optimizing our own health through recommendations from technology, these, are, these things have brought um, efficiency to our life. We don't want to be thinking about these things. But when we surrender the capacity to think critically on our own, it becomes far more dangerous. And as I said, you know, examples of this abound. Social media is an easy target, but there are other targets as well. So... Right now, I'm just visualizing a bunch of people just cycling on like spinning bikes to generate electricity or whatnot, playing games. The Black Mirror episode. So that's your future prediction. That's where we're going to end up. Well, I mean, it's that is part of AI, but it's also living in a virtual world. So in, in some sense, if you can gamify the way I interact with reality mm-hmm. by creating a virtual reality... Yeah. then I no longer need to interact with the physical world around me. Let's be honest, it already happens. I mean, Black Mirror has placed it within a setting that looks far more futuristic. But look at the way we live already. We basically are staring at our phones most of the time. And if we're not staring at our phones, then we're staring at screens. Yeah, Every surface can be digitalized and, and can be transformed into you know, a digital interface. So already we are completely glued to a screen. And we are usually doing things um, in response to stimuli or incentives that these companies create for us. We scroll because we got an, you know, an Apple notification. We scroll through your news feed or you know, an e-commerce site. You know, it's like a Pavlov response. You get a little ding and you look at your phone and your phone vibrates. You take it out and you open it. Mm-hmm. We don't even realize this anymore. And to think like less than, well, 
when did I get my iPhone? My first iPhone, I, I was late to the game. I got it in 2009. So less than 10 years ago, I didn't even know what a smartphone was. Now I can hardly do anything without it. Yeah, that's actually true. And it's a really good point. But let me just take the millennial side of this, which is, Nick, you're just too old. You don't understand new modern stuff. <laughs> you know, a lot of people do joke and say that I'm, I'm like an old man because one of the goals that I set for 2019 is that I should read books more. But uh, look, I'm, I may be old. But here's the thing. You know, I look at a lot of AI technology and I look at what it's done for um, people. And one of the major benefits of AI technology is it helps us save a lot of time. Once again, I, I go back to another example just for the sake of clarity. If I'm talking about you know, depositing a check just by taking a photo of it, that saves time. I don't have to walk to the bank. I love that. You know, If I can walk through a, a door just and I don't have to go stop at the security desk and then you know, it scans my face, I walk right through, it saves time. But the question then is, what am I doing with this extra time? Am I doing something to enrich myself? Am I spending more time with my, my kids, my friends? I mean, we can get you know, pretty pedantic around how we should be spending our free time. It's not something I should be telling people how to do it. But by and large, we go right back to our phone with free time. I know I do. I have some yeah. quiet time to you know, relax on the couch. And you know, this is time that I could be reading a book or talking to a friend, or calling somebody who I haven't talked to, or talking to my parents. Say, I don't call home enough. Mm. Um, but invariably, I'll take out my phone, I'll just watch YouTube, which knows exactly what I like now, which is scary. I didn't realize I was such a shallow person. <laughs> knows exactly what I like, knows, knows everything about me. And it's not, it's, not, it's not a great reflection in the mirror. But um, yeah, so what do you do with that extra time? That's what I, I ask a lot of the people you know, in my millennial generation, in our millennial generation. Yeah, I definitely get your point. And in so many ways, I agree with it. On the other hand, like, I think that's where the issues are right now, right? Where, where it's really hard to draw kind of that line between what gives us efficiency and therefore good for society versus, you know, what we do with our time or when it's becoming a little bit too efficient and making us maybe lazy when we don't want to think and we just want to wake up and a computer tells us, oh, now you need to do the following three things in order to unlock next achievement, in order to get to work and do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's actually a super interesting discussion. And I think the first step in that discussion is actually understanding, debunking this hyped up term AI, what that actually means, but also where we are currently. I think that, you know, the, the idea is that the technology itself is not evil. This is something that it's nuanced, so it's not played up in media narratives or you know movies and novels like this, but it's very nuanced. The technology is not evil. It's what we do with it that determines what it does to us. And so a good example of that is facial scanning. So you know, in a country that I live in right now, a lot of people in the West are very scared that facial scanning is mostly in the hands of the government. And there's cameras all over the country that are able to scan people's faces almost 24-7. The most common stories about China, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's a social score, all that. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have heard of that. And so, you know, that's, that's horrific to a lot of people in the West because, you know, privacy is something that is held sacrosanct. You know, another data point is that in China, crime has dropped 
significantly. And criminals who you know, perhaps have been on the lam for the last few years suddenly resurface because facial scanning software has been able to identify them. So you know, public safety in many ways has been vastly improved because of this. And you know, if you think about the problems that China is facing, I'll give you an example that a lot of young parents might relate to. In China, there's a lot of issue around safety in, in nurseries and in early education facilities like daycare centers, where you know, there was a, it was a big incident in 2018 where these young kids were caught on camera being harassed by their teachers. The teachers were hitting them, rubbing, I think it was mustard in their eyes, or making them eat mustard as punishment. It was, it was terrible. And there's just nothing the parents could do until many days later when they found that, you know, that the children were, um, they were actually harmed physically. And so if you have technology that can, for example, sense anxiety within a room increasing, or that catching these on camera and actually filming these actions and then inferring that this type of action is not standard to a classroom behavior and warning the parents immediately or warning, you know, the, the, other teachers immediately, then perhaps teachers could intervene. This is where the technology can be used in perhaps a helpful way. Now, of course, it can also be abused. And then you ask yourself, how much trust do we put into the people who are controlling this technology? If you come down on the line of, you know, I don't want anybody controlling me, even if they end up doing it for my own good, then you will cast a more suspicious eye towards AI. But, you know, these things also, you know, they bleed into conversations about government, uh, the role of government, the power of government. And so ultimately, I look at it as a problem that we have to discuss together as humans, the type of world we want to live in. AI is a tool that we now have now available to us. How do we want to deploy that tool? Can we come to an agreement across society around those use cases? And can we actually take advantage of the benefits that these tools provide us? These are all questions that... Uh, um, they're not AI questions, they're human questions. Yeah, and so in some ways, actually Elon Musk has a really big point there. You know, should we let privately controlled companies by a very few selected founders whose entire business idea is to, you know, make money to create this new technology? Or should we let government in countries with less transparency control all of this? Or should this be actually something we all own and control together? I think that's a like a really good question that thanks to the topic of AI actually gets raised much more now and enables us to actually talk about. And you definitely have a point there that we need to separate the human problems versus the technology because at the end of the day we together as a society decides on how we use that technology, what we use that on and and also how to how to control it. In many ways, AI is almost like a reflection of us because it analyzes human patterns and like a recommendation engine, it suggests things that we would like. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about the, the siloed nature of social media. You get to see the things you like and you get to interact with the people who are like you. And so if you look at it that way, AI is a reflection of what we want it to be. So when I, without getting too philosophical, these are the things that we have to think about. Um, you know, if we're... If we are a society that that really benefits from the additional convenience of knowing exactly what I want when I want it, then AI can do that. I mean, I think I mean, just another example of a time where I was, um, and this is powerful in, in China. I was browsing something online. It was related to a certain product, and then when I went to when I went to walk through the mall near my house, 
later that afternoon, a salesperson came up to me and suggested that I I look at a product. And it was it was a different brand. It was the same product as the one I was browsing online. So the online and the offline space are completely integrated. And one person might think, well, that's great. Like, you know exactly what I was looking for. That's remarkable. It saves me a lot of time. And um, I feel like you, you know me. <laughs> I guess that's nice. But for me, I was weirded out. I was like, wow, you know me a little too well. Like, I'm usually, I take a while to warm up to people. And what else do you know about me? You know, like, do you also know what type of drinks I like? And you're going to sell me that as well? So, I mean, is this what we want? And, you know, it's different because, like, a lot of these things are decided in the aggregate. So, you know, a company will make this decision when enough people want it. That doesn't mean everybody wants it. And so that goes back to the point of, can you turn this off? Can you shut off data tracking? Will companies allow you to do that? Are you even aware of what's being tracked? This is the whole issue with Facebook. What data do they have on you and how much, they, how much of it do they give out? Um, these things, I think, would benefit from being more transparent and giving more choice to the person the end user. But if the end user isn't knowledgeable, doesn't care about this, ultimately, AI is not going to make the decision to be quote unquote virtuous or um, exploitative. Because these are human normative terms. AI doesn't know what is right and wrong. And with that, thank you so much, Nick, for joining this special episode of Digitally China. And as usual, any feedback, just reach out to us uh, and any suggestions of new topics, please feel free to reach out. Thank you for listening. Digitally China is produced by me, Jacob Leven, Eva Xiao, and Tom Shaw, and it's powered by Radii, an independent media platform exploring culture, innovation, and life in China. You can find them at radiichina.com. Thank you for listening.